Ahoy there! It's episode 14 of the Not So Bon Voyage podcast. And we're wrapping up 2019 with some crazy-ass travel stories, like the story of the flying fat cat. And old people that get upgraded. I also finished my story of Billy Hayes, the world's most infamous hash smuggler. And the final story of the podcast, the piece de la resistance, the most insane survival story that we've told all year. You don't want to miss it? Strap in. Let's go, bitches. And then the train got lost. How does the train get lost when it's on rails? I just want to get out there in the wild. Well, it was in the itinerary. I mean, adventure, it's calling. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been excellent. You got double socks on? Double socks? No, I don't have double socks on. It looks like you're cold. I have my boots on. You do have your boots on. Yeah. Ahoy there, guys. Ahoy. Hey, it's a Not So Bon Voyage podcast, and we're back into it. Last episode of the year. Last episode of the year. Last episode ever. No, last I'm just kidding. episode. I thought you were going to say gotcha. last episode of the decade, which it is. Yes, it, that's true. Last Goodbye, episode. 2010s. 2010, I thought you were going to say 2010. <laughs> 2010. I'm not stuck 10 years ago. But is that what they're called? The 10s? The, the tens. teens? The 2010s. The 2010s. I can't believe Lame. that the next time you hear from us, it will be 2020. You know what's cool that I just thought about? Just thought of right this second? Yes. We're going into the roaring 20s. Ooh. Isn't that cool? Like, obviously, it's not actually the roaring 20s because that happened in uh, 1920. But isn't that like, it? it's like feels new, like is in there the gonna 20s. Be, is there going to be resurgence of like Gatsby-inspired parties? And yes, and rah, I'm rah, bringing rah, it back rah. because I have that dress from our the wedding that we went to that was Gatsby-inspired. I'm bringing back the Gatsby theme. Bringing it back, baby. Flappers, feathers in the hair, let's do this. Flappers. That's such a funny word. Flappers. Flappers. <laughs> okay, well, while we reminisce about the the 2010s and we talk about the future inspiring 2020s, we've got a couple of travel stories to cover today because 2019 is not over just yet and we've got some doozies today. We doozy. <laughs> well, you, you, you're actually telling the second part of your story. I am. I'm telling part two of Billy Spanks. Billy Spanks, also known as Billy Hayes, his correct name, but we've renamed him as Billy Spanks. And that, you really left us on a cliffhanger after yes. last week's episode, so I'm very excited about hearing the end of that because, well, that guy was really didn't get, catch a break towards the end. He did not catch a break. If you did not get to hear the first part of the story, I will be doing a recap, but you might as well go back to the previous episode yeah, and check it out. Go back to episode 13. Listen. Yes. Have a listen. And I have probably the most intense story that I've told on this podcast to date. Really? Yes. Holy shamoli. It is a famous story. It's well known. It's been documented in a book. It's been made into a movie. And it is definitely one of the most intense survival stories I've ever read into. It's It could almost be a podcast on itself, like a short series. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cram it into an explanation today, but wow. I can't wait. Good. Wow, you really talked that up. Uh, that I mean, bar has been set very you high. We'll see what I'm talking about. Okay, I uh, will hope so. So before we get started, let's jump into some in the news because it's also been a pretty crazy uh, couple of weeks. Has it? In the news, yeah. I mean, Christmas is always crazy. And Christmas. Hanukkah, crazy. crazy. Eight crazy nights. Oh, there you That's go. what they call it. I'm going to jump straight into mine. Okay, let's go, because, girl. Because um, just felt like it. You go, yeah. girl. One actually goes back a few weeks, and it's actually pretty funny. It's about animals on a plane again. I know we talked about I know that. how you feel about animals on a plane. What about snakes? Do you feel good about snakes on a plane? Let's get these motherfucking snakes. 
I've never even seen that movie. Either have I. I mean, come on. But no, this story is about a guy who tricked his way into getting his fat, overweight cat onto a flight. Did his you hear fat about- cat? His fat cat. Did you hear about this story? I fe- This sounds vaguely familiar. There was a guy in Russia who basically was trying to get his cat. So oh, yes. they had a weight limit for animals on the planes. And his cat weighed 22 pounds. Holy moly, that cat needs to be on a diet. It, it weighed 10 kilos uh, and the weight limit for animals was 8 kilos to go on the plane and I think after that, they had to go underneath. Okay. So he like, didn't want to do that. So he tricked his way to get his fat cat onto a plane. So this guy, Mikhail Garland, he, so he had his fat cat. He knew, that he, <laughs> he, he knew that his cat was too fat to fly. So what he actually did, he used a stunt cat to, weigh, to weigh in. I love it. All right. So his 22-pound cat, Victor, was too heavy to fly in the, in the cabin. So he used a 15-pound cat called Phoebe as the understudy cat is how he described her. And he weighed the stunt double cat, then switched him out and snuck his big fatty Victor onto the flight. Big chunky. Big chunky monkey. Well, fatty catty. Fatty catty. Um, And then, yeah, switched him out, got him onto the plane, and everything was fine until he started posting and boasting about it on social media. People are so dumb. Stop posting and boasting. So he's posting, boasting about it, gets the cat on Facebook, on Instagram. It's basically like, this is what I did. And it blows up. Uh The story goes viral. The airline finds out about it. And the airline, I mean, they can't really do much about it at this stage because he's already taken the flight. But they strip him of his frequent flyer program and he loses about 400,000 miles from his account. (gasps) Oof, that hurts. Yes, so it goes viral, like it makes the news in Russia, it blows up all over the world. Like, I mean, this is a New York Times article, it's Washington Post, like all the newses. Was it all the newses? All the, all the newsies. Um, was it a Russian airline? It was. It was, um, what's it called? You won't be able to pronounce it anyway. Mm. Russian airline number one. Yeah, they were going to Vladivostok. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Something very Russian sounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were going there and the airline, I don't know. But anyway, he got caught because he posted it. What a dum-dum. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty funny though. That's hilarious. It's pretty funny that, like, to, I feel like that's something that I would probably have done. Yeah. Like, post about it's it. It's very like, clever. It's very clever. But to post about it and then to obviously find out that. If you post about it, you'll want to be able to cash in on that in some way and then he needs to have a t-shirt line yeah or an instagram i mean now the grumpy cat r.i.p is deceased we have room for the next big cat why not fat cat victor well he got hella likes on some of his instagram posts for it he doesn't have a huge following he gets okay engagement but uh he got good likes on the cat pictures that's good maybe he'll work with friskies or something yeah but also he probably just fall off the radar because the internet is fleeting these days. It's a fickle, fickle friend, the internet. Okay, the, the airline was called Aeroflot. Aero what? Flot. Flot? Aeroflot? F-L-O-T. Okay, well, there you go. There you go. Wow, that's Anyway, crazy. that's my story. Fat cat. Fat cat. I love it. That Victor sounds adorable. I want to hold him. That's a fat cat. 22 pounds. That's huge, right? It must be a Maine Coon of some sort. Yeah, probably. Big wild cat. Okay. Okay. Well, my in the news, I am ending the year with positive vibes, as I said last week. 
So I have another heartwarming story that is a continuation of my in the news from last week. So last week I told you the story of a young man who gave up his first class seat to an 88-year-old woman. What a gentleman. What a gentleman. He's a little gentleman. And they were on a Virgin Atlantic flight. I still don't know where they were going. For some reason, the journalism is driving me nuts. Nobody's said where they're going. But Virgin Atlantic, because of this nice gesture, they have announced that they're going to upgrade the oldest passenger on every flight for the rest of 2019. You go, oldies. Power to the people. Yeah, how fun. So you have, well, by the time you're listening to this podcast, you only have one more day. Yes. To capitalize on this. But hey, Take if you want to fly. A flight if you're really old. If you're really old and you want you think you're the oldest. It's a gamble, though, because maybe you're not the oldest. There's some old know. people out there. There's some old people. Also, I don't know if all of them are being upgraded to first class, because what if the flight's full? I read something about maybe they just get um, like drinks and stuff. Well, but- also, not every flight has first class. They might only have business or something. That's true. But, you know, business is better than coach. It's business, right? baby. That's the biz. That's the biz. That's the biz. You got to be old if you want to get the biz. You got to be in the biz. <laughs> so that is my heartwarming story. It's nice to see Virgin Atlantic taking that nice gesture and paying it forward. Yeah, at least for a couple of days for PR, anyway. Yeah. Well, this. So I mean, cynical. I feel like this was like a week ago, so they had at least a little bit of. What is it? Time. Congratulations! You won the old lottery. And te- like, I'm sure they do so many flights a day, so it's a lot of flights. Yeah. Yeah. What? How do how you explain that to somebody? Congratulations, you've been upgraded because you're old. You old. You old as fuck. You're the oldest person here. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> thanks. Things are rubbing in. Um, they said they're giving them to the most seasoned passengers. That was the way they said old people. Seasoned. Wrinkly ass. Motherfucker. Seasoned. Seasoned. Some pepper and thyme, mm. you know, lightly seasoned. Yeah, overcooked, perhaps. Oh, leave the oldies alone. Let leave them enjoy them their first alone. class. Yeah, good on him. Well, there you go. You've got one day since listening to this podcast to get out there and book your flight. I don't think anyone super old listens to this podcast. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, we should do something for the our oldest listener. Tell us how old you are. Tell us how old you are. You had to prove it. The oldest listener will get a first class flight to San Francisco. No, that's no, no, not happening. That's not true. Sorry. But we will send you a special gift to our oldest listener. So if you're old and can prove it, then hit us up. Yeah, I want a uh, social security number. I want credit card details. PIN. PIN, uh, those sorts of things. Yes, we need all that. Okay. Old people love to give that information yeah. away anyway. Oh. Just kidding. Sorry, oh, oldies. What's that? Uh, I've won a mattress. Sure, here's my social security number. <laughs> yeah. oh. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, main stories. I think that we need to get into it today because my main story is not necessarily going to take a long time. It's just so nutrient and detail rich that wow is yeah, it fertile should we plant fertile. it i mean it's ready to go do you want to finish your story is first it ready or to do you want sprout? me to go um i think i should finish my story first okay go for it to, to wrap your it up. story is insane if you haven't listened to last episode it doesn't really matter christine's going to give you a recap you should definitely go back and listen to it last episode because it was a good episode yes and christine has more details on the beginning of the story but it's, I can't wait to hear the end of this story because it's insane. I'm giving a very short recap because I do want people to go back and listen to the first part of it. So this is my very short recap of Billy Hayes, a.k.a. Billy Spanks. I don't know why we started calling him that. 
Uh, because he, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember. But oh, no, anyway. Because he strapped the, the hash to his body in Spanx. Oh, but it wasn't in Spanx. No, no. <laughs> I don't think that was it. If you can remember why we called him Billy Spanx, hit us up. I'll send you a prize too. Everybody gets a prize. Uh, so this is the story of Billy Hayes, the world's most infamous hash smuggler. He is a young guy in his early 20s who travels from New York to Istanbul a lot. He loves Istanbul. And every time, he brings back a special souvenir home with him. It is hash. Ooh. <laughs> he does this a few times before he gets caught in October of 1970. Womp womp. He's sentenced to four and a half years in a Turkish prison. So he's serving his years, and then with only 54 days left, he finds out that his sentence has increased to life in prison. What a bummer. Yeah, so that's where we left off. He was like, okay, I'm just going to like wait out the rest of my sentence. 54 days left, and a lawyer shows up and says, actually, you're going to be in here for life. Okay. Oh, my God. Crazy. And the story continues. And the story continues. So- and there's also... Just to even uh, from what I remember last episode is that there's also a crazy story about an attempted getaway, a breakaway, a friend who gets murdered. So, yeah, go back, listen to last week. Very cool episode. Go back. It's cray cray. But now this is where we leave off. So he has how many days left? 54. 54 days. 54. Out of of four years. And then suddenly he gets told he's in there for how long? Uh, Well, technically his sentence got increased to life. Uh oh. But the lawyer did say they thought they could get it down to 30 years. Okay. But still, that's I mean, insane. that's so upsetting. So obviously, he's very frustrated. So at this point, he's like, okay, I need to escape for real, real. Because last time it was fake, fake. Yep. And, you know, conditions in a Turkish prison in 1970? Not the best. Not although the best. he did have some good times. He. As I mentioned in the last episode, he got the acid sent to him. Yes. He had a lover. And many things happened. So he got spanked. He got spanked. Maybe that's where it came from. So, But he's like, I got to get out of here. I can't spend 30 years in this prison. In 1975, he has his father smuggled $2,700 buried in the binding of a book. Ooh. It's a lot of bees. It's very alliterative. So he gets this cash, he uses it to bribe an officer to get transferred to Imrola prison, which is a small Turkish prison island. So this is an island. That sounds like a nice little upgrade. Yeah. So they call it the Alcatraz of Turkey. I don't know if they called it that before he escaped, but... Someone called it that on the internet. As in it's inescapable, as in that Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery filmed a movie there? I think both. Both, okay. Okay, so he's in Umrala, which is the Turkish prison island. It is a little bit different because they can move around. They're on an island, so there's a fresh sea breeze. It's a little bit nicer. That doesn't seem like much to bribe your way to a new prison. Well, okay. So you mean just it'd be better just to bribe to escape? Oh, no. Well, that'd be a lot harder to justify, but $2,700 to go from a shitty prison to like an island prison where you can move around. Well, he thinks that he can escape easier from this prison Uh. for some reason. I'm not sure why. It is a working prison. So the prisoners work to get vegetables and other things from these boats that come in to the island. Usually the boats leave every day before nightfall. But one day there's a storm and the boats have to anchor down for the night. And he's like, this is my only chance. Like, this is it. This is this has to be it. So his plan is to cut the rope on one of the dinghies, 
Dingies? Dingies, yeah. Dingies? Little one of the little rowboats. Little rubber duckies. A, rubber du- a little rubber ducky and row to land. He stays out after bed check and he starts wading out into the water. He took a knife from the canning factory on the island, which is one of the other places the prisoners work. That seems like sloppy guardmanship. Yeah, to what get... if you wanted to shiv someone? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just crazy out there, but you could, couldn't you just slash the guard's throat and escape that way? But who knows? I anyway. Mean, you probably have to go through a fair few amount of guards. You would think. Well, his, real, his travel adventures to Turkey have really t- taken a turn. They have really taken a it's turn. It's gone from casually, casually visiting Turkey to being an international hash smuggler to staging a prison escape. Yes, which is a form of travel. Yeah. He is escaping. In a and dinghy. He's moving from, he's doing a, a water travel. He will be, yes. He starts wading out into the water. He saws off one of the ropes for the dinghy. Finally, he gets the dinghy free and he just starts rowing because that's what you're going to do when you're escaping. Just row. <laughs> that's what you do at any time. Just keep rowing. Just keep Never rowing. Stop but rowing, I'm on land. Guys. I don't know. Just keep rowing. Just keep rowing. Land row. Land row. Hmm. It's not that hard. Just do it. He rows for about eight hours, which is about 17 miles across the ocean to get to the mainland. And he makes it to land. Woo! But obviously, they're going to be doing bed checks for the morning time back in the prison. So he's immediately like, this is not over. I have to get to Greece. I guess Greece and Turkey did not have good relations at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they still have bad relations. I've got no idea. I don't know. But basically, he figures if he can get to Greece, then he won't be sent back. So he has landed in the town of Banderna, and he has to get to the border, which is over 500 miles away. Okay. Yeah. So that's a long time. So that's by this stage, they're going to be looking for him. They're definitely going to be looking for him. So he spends three days traveling across Turkey by bus as a wanted prisoner. With no money, I'm assuming? With no money. Apparently, he had some connections from prison, so he hit some people up and was able to get maybe some papers to travel. Okay. okay. He also dyed his hair jet black, which oh. it was blonde. There you go. I mean, and it's you can never recognize somebody who dyes their hair. Yeah, so it's a fact. It's actually a fact that you become invisible when you dye your hair jet black. It's like all the movies where somebody goes to the gas station and dyes their hair. Yes. Or bleaches it if it's dark. Yeah, and they always leave the dye like on the sink. Yeah. And it's like, they've been here dyeing their hair. <laughs> so he crosses a minefield. He gets to the border. He uh, basically just makes a run for it down this river, starts swimming. He's disoriented. He's hallucinating. He's exhausted. I mean, he rode for eight hours. Yeah. He finds a dirt road and passes a wooden kiosk, and suddenly, boom, a bayonet comes down directly in his face. He doesn't know where he is or what this is or what's happening, but someone is yelling at him and has a bayonet directly in his face. And he's like, oh my God, what's happening? And then he realizes the person who is yelling at him, he does not understand them. At this point, he speaks Turkish because he's been in Turkey for like five years. Oh, I was going to say that. I was like, I was going to say, does he speak Turkish? Which means he has made it to Greece. Oh. Thank Fuck. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure where that was going. Yeah, no, he made it to Greece, and it was a soldier that was pointing a bayonet at him because he's illegally crossing the border speaking in the middle Greek. of the night, ah. speaking Greek. So he just starts, he hits the ground, he just starts laughing because he knows that he's 
basically safe. And then the great god stabs him. And then the great god stabs and him with a bayonet. I don't know. I guess bayonets were really big in the 70s. I mean, isn't, isn't that how his friend got killed? Yeah, a bayonet in the bayonet. stomach. Oh. Yeah, so I don't know. Bayonets were very big. Maybe they're going to bring it back in the roaring 2020s. They should definitely do that. Well, we're in the 20s, so let's go. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of... That's pretty much the main crux of the story. I'll just give you a little post-haste, post-PS. Well, well, so he makes it to Greece and then he lives happily ever after? Okay, well, this is the rest of it. He makes so it to Greece. To it. He makes it to Greece. They interrogate him for a bit about Turkish military intelligence because they think maybe he knows something. They deport him to Frankfurt. He flies to Amsterdam and finally makes it back to his daddy in JFK. Thank you, daddy. Okay. His dad has done so much for him. When so I was watching the National Geographic banged up abroad or, or whatever it's called, and he is feels so guilty that he put his parents through that. Because so many people came to his dad in the States and were basically like, I can get your son out. Just pay me money. Like, I can figure out a way to get him out. Mm. So he paid for all these schemes and they, none of them ever worked. Ponzi schemes. Ponzi. No, no. I don't think it's no, a Ponzi. No. I mean, it's a it's definitely a scheme of sorts. So, so he makes it to Greece and then he's just, I mean, that's not usually how it works though. Like, it's not like if you can escape prison and get back to your country, then you win. Well, like, don't the Turkish authorities, aren't they looking for him? Yes. The Turkish authorities are obviously are mad, upset, but Greece hates Turkey and Turkey hates Greece. So At this time? At this time. I don't know what the current situation is. Okay. But Greece is basically like, fuck you, we're not giving you this prisoner back, you're an asshole. And Turkey's like, well, fuck you. And that's basically what's happening. So they're like children in a schoolyard. Exactly. Well, so- you stole our prisoner first. Well, yeah, I'm telling my mum that's the UN. Yeah, exactly. So Turkey puts him on their terror watch list. Interpol has a warrant out for his arrest. But then can't they extradite him from the US? I don't think you can. Uh, I don't think you can extradite from a foreign country unless there's like really good diplomatic relations or something. I don't know. So basically he makes it back to the US and then he's home. Yes. That doesn't seem right, but I guess it's the 70s. I, who knows? I think that... I mean, it doesn't seem right, but I think it just has to do with the relationships of the countries. And the U.S. are fine with him coming back. Yes, because they feel like he didn't deserve that extra time. Yeah, well, that was super sketchy. I mean, they changed it from, what, a possession? Mm-hmm. So he gets four years for possession, and then they change it 54 days out to trafficking. Yeah. It's hella whack. Yeah. So I think maybe it depends on what kind of crime you did as well. Like if it was like a murder or yeah, something but I mean else. he is smuggling drugs back into the U.S. Yeah, they. I was reading that the DA DEA was basically like we don't lo- deal with these small time smugglers. Like we don't really care about that. So he wasn't smuggling that much back. No, it was like four kilos at a time or something. Okay, two so to was, four kilos. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was, was small scale. time. He wasn't doing huge plane operations and filling. No, you know. he was not a, uh, what's that guy? Escobar. Escobar. He was no Escobar, this guy. But he's just a, you know, hash dealer. Yeah. I don't know why. I think they call him the most infamous hash smuggler because of this escape. Well, that's pretty insane. The fact that he escaped prison and got out, made it to Greece, then made his way back to the US and is now kicking it. Is he still alive? Yes. Well, not only that, but he came back and was basically like an instant celebrity. So he wrote a book about his experience called Midnight Express, which was made into a movie by Oliver Stone. Could he profit from that? He could. 
mm. because it's another country. Yeah. So, so he, basically, he's like, I'm an I'm an international drug smuggler, and I I broke out of prison, even though legally I'm supposed to be there. And everyone's like, cool. Yes. All right. People, I mean, people there probably go, guys, thought it was if you awesome. You want to make some money? You know what you got to do. Yep. All you have to do is smuggle drugs, get caught, go get transferred to an island prison, escape, make <laughs> your no way back deal. to US. And then make sure that you're Instagramming it the whole time. Yes, clearly, obviously. And write about your fat cat. <laughs> so he gets consulted on the movie. It becomes this big thing. But one of the problems is that in the movie, they take obviously some creative liberties, including the scene where Billy learns that his sentence has been extended. And in the scene in the movie... Billy, the actor who plays Billy, curses the judge out and calls Turkey a nation of pigs. And he says, I fuck your sons and daughters because they're pigs. You're a pig. You're all pigs. Everyone's a pig, big old <laughs> McBilly. <laughs> Farm. Hoink, 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 hoink. Very much. It was just, he's calling everybody pigs. Yeah, okay. Pig land. So the Turks were portrayed really poorly in the movie. They seem barbaric. And actually, now Billy... And Oliver Stone have said that they regret how the Turks were portrayed in that movie. So they're more chill. So, yes. But the problem is that they this was a huge movie back in the 70s. Yeah. you. So I also wanted to make a correction. Last week you said it was 1987. Yes, I And did. it was actually 78. Eight. Which is crazy because that's only three years after he escaped. Yeah. They got that thing whipped around. Bang, bang. Boom, bang, bang. Boom goes dynamite. Boom. So people have said, it It has been stated, that the movie was responsible for a 95% decrease in American tourism to Turkey. Oh, because people were worried about getting stitched up or like, right. like they couldn't trust the legal system. Everything. Yeah. They thought that, you know, there's mm. a bunch of piggies running around. It's just all oink, piggies. Oink, oink. oink. And that the Turks are really barbaric and, yeah, possibly going to throw you in jail and it's going to be really unjust. So the stat is it was a 95% decrease in tourism, which is huge. Yeah, It's obviously very negative for the economy. Big problem. So Turkey hated Billy Hayes for a long time. (laughs) It's fair to say that he was not invited back. He was a persona non grata. Well, if he ever went back, I'm assuming he would be rearrested, wouldn't he? Okay, so... He started working on a documentary of his life, and him and his crew decided that he should return to Turkey to make amends, and that's going to be like their big closing for the documentary. He obviously had a lot of trouble getting a visa, but somebody from the Turkish National Police, which is like the Turkish FBI, said that he believed Billy wanted to make amends and that he'd help him get to Turkey. So he got a visa, and Billy's lawyer, family, and friends said, do not go to motherfucking Turkey. He thought... They would... I mean, they basically made their their judicial system and their courts and their jails have been made a mockery by him. Right. I mean, to be fair, this was 32 years after the escape. Yeah. So this was quite a bit of time after. I'm Billy Hayes, and I endorse Turkey for tourism. Pretty much. So... All of his family and friends said, don't go to Turkey. You're going to get arrested right when you walk off the plane. This is a trap, all this stuff. And he's like, no, I'm good. I'm going to go. He's like, I'll go. Does he go? He goes. And it's not a trap. He is actually somewhat of a mythic lore 
in mythical character. Yeah, he's but a he's myth- alive. He's he's alive. Yeah, but he, people, you know, everybody knows him in Turkey he's folklore. I think because enough time has passed, it's more of like like a folklore rather than like a really like oh fuck you you know yeah so he goes and he makes amends does he stay at the prison that is now a hotel uh he did not stay there but he that went. would be cool yeah he said this is really weird and he also went back to where the mental hospital was that he tried to get into yeah but does he it, go back to the the turkish rock to, oh, to the, the Rock? <laughs> to Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Yeah. The Turkish version? I don't think he went back to the island. Well, I'm really surprised that he was able to go back. Like, it just blows my mind that this is just, like, he got out, he escaped, and he's just like, well, I'm back in the US now. And everyone just went, okay. Right. And then he just goes, oh, can I come back to Turkey? And they're like, uh, yeah, why not? Right. It's so weird. Even though you're, you're still a wanted... I think because the Turkish government had been in such turmoil, like it was constantly, I think when he got his sentence increased, it was because a new government had taken over. Uh, so maybe another government had come in and gone, look, actually, that was unjust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it was 30 years ago. Yeah. And also it was bullshit. Right. Exactly. So I think they were like, okay, let's just both be chill. Also, why it doesn't seem right that. You can change, like for instance, if you were punished for a crime and the laws at that time gave you a certain period of time, like they can't just increase it. Right. When you're already in there. No, they cannot, absolutely cannot do that. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, good on him, Billy Hayes. So, yeah, it's crazy because he went back 32 years after his escape, which is just a little bit later than when he would have been released if he had gotten that 30-year sentence. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Maybe that was his anniversary. And now he works in the cannabis industry in the States. Oh, there you go. So he always stayed, he stayed close to yes. weed. There you go. And that is the unbelievable true story of the world's most infamous hash mongler, Billy Spanks, a.k.a. Billy Hayes. A.k.a. Billy Spank Me Baby. A.k.a. Billy Spanks you very much for letting us tell your story. Thanks, Billy. Midnight Express is a movie if you want to check it out. And it's a book. There you go. I would like to read the book. I think it sounds really interesting. It does sound interesting. And it's more factually correct. We will put a link to the movie and the book in the show notes on notsobonvoyage.com for this episode. Yes. And I got a lot of info for this from a Vice article and a Daily Beast article. So I'll link those as well. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you ready for this? Um, I think I need to stretch for a second. I need to stretch as well. Okay. Let's stretch. Okay. Okay, are you ready for one of the greatest stories of survival that this podcast has ever, ever heard of? I don't know. This seems like intense. It is yes. intense. Okay, yes, no, I am No, it is ready. an intense story. Holy shit. But I'm just going to, there's no way, there's no better way to start it than starting at the beginning. That's it. often a good Usually place to start. Usually stories start like that. It's October 12th, 1972. And flight 571 on a Uruguayan airline is headed from Montevideo, Uruguay. Uruguay is going to be a word that I trip up on. I'm, like, I'm here for it. Uruguay to Santiago, Chile. The plane has been chartered specifically to send a Uruguayan rugby team to Chile for a match against an English team. Okay. Sounds vaguely familiar. Okay. There's 45 people on the flight. It's chartered specifically for this rugby team. They take off on Thursday, the 12th of October. There's 45 people on board the flight, including five crew members, 19 people from the rugby team, as well as supporters, family, and friends of the team, 
all headed to Chile for a rugby game. Hmm. After taking off from Uruguay, the flight encounters some rough weather getting towards the Andes and has to make a stopover in Mendoza, Argentina. Okay. After reassessing the flight and waiting for the bad weather to clear, the pilot departed the next day on the 13th, Friday the 13th. <gasps> no. Continuing on to its final destination in Chile. Final destination. Oh. That's right. Somewhere while crossing the Andes, one of the co-pilots, so there's two pilots. One of the pilots is touted as being the more experienced one, having crossed the Andes, I think, 20, 29 times and logged a, a decent amount of um, hours. Mm-hmm. The other one is not so experienced. The Andes is like a long ridge. I'm making instruments with my hand. You can't actually see. I can see The it. Andes <laughs> is a long like mountain range. And basically, this plane is a two-propeller prop plane, and it doesn't have enough power, and it doesn't fly high enough to fly over the Andes and cross it. Mm-hmm. So they actually have to fly down to mm-hmm. basically the end of the Andes, hit a pass to cross it, and then loop back up to Chile. Okay. So it would be something like a 90-minute flight if they just cross straight across to Santiago. Okay. They have to do a U-shaped loop to loop around the Andes because they can't get the elevation to get over the mountains. Gotcha. It's just way too, too much bad weather, and it's just too high, and the engine's not strong enough. Too risky. Too risky. Risky business. Yep. So somewhere while crossing that little U-turn thing and crossing the Andes at the bottom part, one of the co-pilots who was inexperienced thought that the plane was almost at the destination where it needed to cut back and turn right mm-hmm. and, and turn north towards its final destination. Mm-hmm. But he actually ended up turning too early and mm-hmm. turned into the Andes <gasps> as opposed to you doing a U-turn around it. He actually turned into it. What about the other pilot? Wasn't the other pilot like no I don't know. The Maybe other he was pilot, taking a nap. Maybe. So he radios in to the destination airport and says, hey, we're passing over this place called Curacao or something, mm-hmm. which is where we're about to turn right and we're going to start a descent into the airport. And he actually, in fact, was completely misguided and was actually still going over the Andes at the time. He turns right, heads into a pass and basically heads into the Andes, into a tunnel and starts his descent. What is he thinking? And can't see. So instead of being, it was still 70 kilometers away from the airport when the pilot started to descend. And by the time the pilot realized, it was too late. Doesn't he have a map? So he does have the instruments to to check all the readings and things. I'm not sure. Basically, the whole thing comes down to being pilot error. Literally. Literally pilot error. So the plane is going through the clouds. It's lots of weather. They hit some serious turbulence. Boom, 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 boom. Fun. Everybody's on the plane going, oh, okay. Then they hit a, like a – because they're getting in the in the valley of the Andes, mm-hmm. they hit the wind tunnels and things, bang, boom. Ah. The plane drops. <gasps> people fly up. Then ah. they start to realize this turbulence is a little bit dodgier than they think. One of the guys looks out the window and he sees that he can basically see the mountains at eye level and he thinks, uh-oh. Oh, shit. It's at that stage he probably has about four or five seconds to realize that – This is not a good situation before. Boom. Ah. The plane hits the top of a mountain (gasps) at 3.34 p.m. Uh. Uh, There was a ridge and the plane slipped through the ridge of a mountain just wide enough basically to get the vessel of the plane through, but obviously Uh. not the wing. Uh. It bounces along the ridge, bang, rips off one of the wings, (gasps) rips off the second wing, breaks the back of the plane completely off. Oh, my and God. three quarters of the plane, just the vessel element of the plane, flies onto a slope, hits the slope, 
and start sliding. Now, like the, a giant toboggan. Toboggan. So as the plane as the plane hits the ridge, I'll go back one sec. As the plane hits the ridge, it breaks off the wings. It breaks off the back of the plane, and seven people are <gasps> sucked, sucked out. Sucked out. Oh of the my plane. god! Worst nightmare. The front of the plane, without wings or a back, hits the slopes, slides down at 350 kilometers an hour, about 220 miles an hour, sliding down, hitting the curves, basically tobogganing down the mountains before, bang, it smashes into a soft snowbank, thankfully not a rocky mountain, that both the pilots are killed, basically, in the crash, along with three other people. But it finally comes to a stop, boom, on a flat surface at the bottom of a valley, after smashing three-quarters of the plane off and sliding down. 45 people on the plane originally at takeoff. 33 passengers are still alive. Okay. Wow. That's, so, a, that's a good amount. That's not a bad percentage. It's not bad. In terms of plane crashes. Yeah. So now this plane is sitting at the bottom of a ridge in a little valley in the middle of the Andes, completely ripped open, with 33 people having been... St- and then and there's also a lot of people still banged up and right. smashed up yeah. at this stage. And terrified. And terrified. At this time, the sun is setting pretty early. They don't have a lot of time to sort of recover themselves and and get work out what they're doing. The sun sets. They, they grab luggage. They chuck on clothes. They sort of get themselves warm. The sun sets. They go to bed that night. Five more people pass away Aww. overnight. That's very sad. Because the temperatures are below freezing. They're like minus 30 degrees, which is about minus 20 Fahrenheit, minus 30 uh, Celsius at night. And the total number of people being alive is down from 45 to 28 on day two. Wow. Now, this in itself is a crazy not-so-bon voyage. Yes. Just the plane crash and everything and... Bananas. Obviously what happened. But what happens next is the ultimate story of survival. Let's do this. The ultimate story. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm so ready. Okay. So it's day two. They wake up. They're down to 28 from 45. People are still really banged up. One of the guys is actually in a coma <gasps> because he has... Sm- now, I, I got this from a really great History Channel documentary, which I'll link to. I only, only watched about halfway. It was quite long. But I heard this part and it was very fascinating and I'll, I'll loop back to it. But this guy had basically hit his head so hard that he had such concussion and brain trauma that he was put into a coma. Wow. And these his friends and their survivors, they basically – so there was a few people who died. They were using the vessel of the plane as a shelter and they removed the dead bodies. They kind of dragged them out to the into the cold, like into the snow, into the ice to – Basically make room. Well, just to make room so Mm -hmm. they didn't have to be hanging out with dead bodies. And they dragged them onto the ice. Good idea. And they dragged this one guy who was basically in a coma. I think they thought he was dead or they either thought he was dying because he was just unconscious for like days. Mm -hmm. They dragged him to the front of the plane and sort of left him there. And what actually ended up happening to this guy is they found out that one of the best treatments for severe brain injury is like hypothermic um, treatment. Really? Yeah, and this is not even something that they knew. They just dragged them sort of there. And neurosurgeons later on, and this is in studies later on, because this is 1970s, have actually, you know, 50 years ago, they've actually discovered that um, hypothermia and like cryo, 
you know, like basically mm-hmm. super cold. Yeah. It's one of the best ways to help the recovery of severe brain injury and swelling. And so they actually didn't realize this at the time, but the freezing cold temperatures are actually what saved his life. Wow. There's way more to it, but I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. Because, that is a very interesting tidbit. Yes. So the remaining survivors- So that guy survives. Spoiler well, alert. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so the remaining survivors at this stage, I know, I was like, how am I going to tell this story without basically realizing that? That's okay. Because, I mean, how do you get these I mean, details? You, you did call it the epic story of survival, That's so true. I know somebody survives. Somebody does survive. I hope it's not just that guy. So, well, there's 28 people left. The remaining survivors, they use whatever scraps, parts, and pieces they recover from the plane to make shelter and to try and shield themselves from the harsh conditions. So they're using the seats, they're using luggage, they're using whatever they can find to stay safe. They strip all the luggage, they put all the clothes on, they're trying to stop themselves from the blizzard conditions that are outside, just basically trying to survive at this stage. Wow. They, they get creative and they start to find uses for things to help their survival while they await a rescue. Okay. If it comes. They turn the seats into snowshoes. They, the seats into snowshoes? Yeah, so they can like walk on the snow without it freezing their feet. They like rip off the fabric or something? Yeah, things okay. like that. Uh, they use the windshield glass. To, one guy makes it, I think it says he uses a bra and the windshield glass to make goggles to help him. Oh, my God. So he doesn't get snow blindless from the, from the blizzards. That's They're hilarious. Using all kinds of things. They find out a way to melt the snow to drink it. Okay, well, that's important. So hydration isn't a huge issue at this moment, but food is scarce. Yes. Very scarce. Remember, this plane was just going from uh, a short trip. So they weren't planning on going on this big expedition. Did they have snacks? They had a few snacks at the stage. This is why if I'm ever in a plane crash, I want to go down with Delta because they have the best snacks. The best snacks. They have so many snacks. Well, JetBlue has good snacks as well. JetBlue also has good snacks. So search teams from Chile, from Argentina, and from Uruguay are out looking for the flight. But they they have no idea where it is. The mountains are vast. They're difficult to search. They basically can't find them. Mm -hmm. So they're from Uruguay. They passed. Remember, they stopped in Mendoza, Argentina, and they're going to Chile. So it's a bit of a try- they're mm-hmm. in a bit of a triangle between the three countries. All three countries are out there looking for him, search and rescue. They can't navigate the Andes. I mean, the Andes are huge. Like some of some parts are still unexplored. Ooh. So they're like they're trying looking for him. They're basically not having much luck. But in a weird sort of twist of fate, there is a radio on board that functions, okay. and they can hear people communicating with them, but they can't communicate back. Oh, that must be so frustrating. So they can hear that the people are talking about the search rescue and things like that, but they can't communicate back to them. At least they know somebody's looking for them. Yes. So they're pretty much fucked at this stage, right? Their water is kind of covered. Shelter is okay, but the very limited food is done. They started out with just a few chocolate bars. They had a bottle of wine, and I think they had some dried fruits and nuts, but it didn't take long for food to run out. There's no animals. There's no vegetation out there to eat. In desperate need of food or just anything in the stomach, the survivors started to eat the cotton and the leather from the seats. I hate to bring this up, but... Let me continue. Okay. Okay? So they're desperate. So they're basically starving. On day nine... Another person passes away. So remember that they've crashed a plane and, you know, so some of them are injured. They've got broken bones, they've got concussions, they've got cuts and wounds and things like that. Day nine? Day nine. Wow. They're nine days in. Okay. 
on day 10. So they're, so for the first week and a bit, they're just trying to survive. They're making shelter. They're waiting, hopefully, for a rescue team. They're listening to the rescue efforts, thinking at some stage somebody's got to find them. Yes. On day 10, they hear on the radio that the search and rescue team has stopped. Oh, no. What? They're just giving up? Because they can't find them, and they just <sighs> assume that everybody's dead. That sucks. That so, would be so annoying. Yes, I know. You'd almost prefer not to know. Yeah, exactly. So they're starving to death, They f- and they face the unfortunate decision that they think they're going to have to make. They're going to have to start eating the dead. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. Ugh. They are, So they're part of a Christian rugby team, like an amateurs team. Obviously, um, a lot of South America being fairly religious. They're Catholics. They're... The thought of this is more than just ethical, it's it's faith related. So it's a very hard decision that they're making. One of the What does survi- the Bible say about cannibalism? Probably not good. Probably frowned probably upon. Does, probably frowned upon. Pops. So one of the survivors, one of the guys, Roberto Canessa, who was nineteen at the time, said We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates preserved outside in the snow and ice contained vital, life giving protein that could help us survive. Mm. So it wasn't just the fact that these people were a potential food source to keep them alive. They were actually friends and family. Oh, yeah, that's true. It wasn't a random flight. It wasn't just a a flight with a stranger next to you going to Chile. The people were either your teammates. Yeah. People had their parents, their sisters, their coaches. Like everybody on that flight was there, somebody they knew. Wow. So there were no strangers apart from the pilots. That's really sad. I hope, so, did they eat the pilots? So in order to survive, they, they, they started to do the unthinkable. At this point, they also made a pact with the remaining people who were still alive, which was at this stage about 27, that if any of them were to die, that they would permit the rest of the people to eat them. So okay. the people who had died obviously didn't have a say in it. Yeah. But the people who were about to contemplate doing this said, if I happen to die or whatever happens, I will also say that it's fine. You know, like this That's is just nice. what this is just what's going to have to be. I give you my blessing to eat me. Yes. So, Robert Canessa, who details the ordeal in a memoir, oh, a memoir, was the one who started. He was a medical student at the time, so he started it. He That's convenient. Yeah. So a lot of them were students. Um, so he uses a piece of broken glass, Ugh. I think from the windshield or something like that, and he uses it to cut small strips off the frozen bodies. Ugh. He says, we laid the thin strips of frozen flesh outside on a piece of sheet metal. Each of us um, finally consumed our piece when we could bear to. It was raw? Yeah, of course. So they can't find any way to make a fire? I don't think so. Oh, my God, raw flesh? They left the strips out and everybody took their time to basically process it in their own time and to do what they had to do, all except one lady who just said she just couldn't do it. Mm, Um, Fair enough. So at this stage, they were surviving, just... Uh, they're getting protein from the dead, and they have water and they have shelter. Okay. So the days are ticking on. It's been more than two weeks. Uh, it's day 17. So, you know, it's almost three weeks out there, and they're inside. So they're using the plane, the, what's left of the plane, as a shelter for, at night. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the night when they're sleeping, boom, an avalanche hits the plane shelter, and everybody sleeping inside, eight more survivors are killed. Fucking hell, they can't catch a break. Cannot catch a break. Yikes. They, so they've survived out in freezing temperatures in the middle of the Andes after a plane crash. 
for 17 days and bang, an avalanche hits the plane, completely oh. buries the whole plane under snow. Oh, my and God. eight more people uh, die in the process. Jesus. So there's 19 remaining people inside, trapped inside the plane, and it takes them days to get out. They have to bury out, uh, tunnel out? Yeah. So they're running low on air at this stage. One of them gets uh, a big pipe, sticks it up through the snow. They're able to get some airflow into the cabin, and it takes them days to basically tunnel through the snow to get out, and they realize that there's it's a blizzard blowing out there. They they dig through the cockpit, um, and they have to basically take shelter inside this buried plane for a few days before they can get out. But they get out. How do you know how far underneath the snow they were? I'm not sure. But okay. they basically said they had to. They went through the cockpit and had to like tunnel through. Mm-hmm. And they saw it was blizzardy, and they had to. Yikes. Yeah. Um. So they had to take shelter in the plane. So this is day 17. It takes them a few days to get out. While they're in there, they continue to eat some of the other dead passengers. Mm-hmm. These are the eight people who had committed their body to say, basically, because remember, everyone had made the pact that said, if I pass away, then like go for it. Right. So they have food sources in there because these people, but that's crazy because these people are like people who were just with them doing the same thing. Right. And now they have to do the unthinkable with them. Yes. So now their friends and family are literally helping them survive by being a food source. Ugh. So it's tough, but they're surviving. It's now been over a month. Holy shit. One whole month. A month. Yes. Uh, a couple more people die on day 34 and day 37. Oh, my God. So it's been over a month. It's been over a month. They actually die from gangrene, from an infection, mm, from a wound gangrene. that they got um, during the crash. So remember, like, you know, people were cut up, banged up. People had broken bones, broken legs, and they have to just hang out. Right. And basically, like, deal with the injuries without medication or without treatment. So it's day 34, day 37. Two more people do, but they persevere. Two more people do what? Two people die. Yeah. Uh, they persevere, and by the two-month mark, they lose one more survivor. The, the girl who- Two had- months? Two months. What the fuck? The girl who had, or lady who had um, said that she couldn't eat the flesh eventually dies. What, I don't know. She, how, what was she surviving on? I've got no idea. It she said she weighed have... 25 kilos. She, oh, 25 kilos. It's like wow. 50 pounds. Wow, she really held on there. Yeah, so this is at the two-month mark. So that, at this stage, they're 60 days in. That's when she um, passed away. And they discussed trying to search for help, and it was pretty clear that the search teams had given up on them at this stage. Yeah, two months in. Yeah, they had tried to scale some mountains, they had tried a couple of expeditions, but due to bad weather conditions, being sick, malnutrition, like not having supplies, they kind of had failed. And they're just getting further. Oh, wait, no, we're getting into summer. Well, I don't know if that makes a difference on the I, Andes. I don't know if it makes a difference. I don't know if anything makes a difference. Yeah. Um, they had on various sort of like explorations, they had actually found some of the people. They did eventually find all the people who had been sucked out of the plane. They did find them? They did find them. So That's I guess good. on various expeditions trying to like search the area, they had found them. But they basically hadn't had any op- any luck getting out of this area or searching it. But at day 60, when the last person uh, died, they said to themselves, well, you know what, we – on sorry, on day 61 this is now. So after day 60, on day 61 they get together, three guys, and they're like, well, we can either wait here and die or we can die trying, looking for help. For so sure. So 
Let's just do it. Yeah. So they they basically get as many supplies as they can together. They haven't got anything. Like they haven't got hiking stuff. They haven't got proper maps. They haven't got anything. They make sleeping bags out of the plane insulation that helps them survive at night. They make quilts from scraps and wreckages. People are sewing stuff together. They're basically just crafting a whole expedition of supplies on whatever they can get. They find an old map from the pilot. They think they sort of know which direction they might need to go, but they also have no idea where they are because the pilot took the wrong trip. Right. So they're, they're sort of just guesstimating at this stage. They basically just scrap together a whole bunch of things. So they take off three guys. I guess they get a little bit into the journey. One guy comes back for some reason, mm-hmm. and the two other guys keep going. After nine days of hiking. With their bra goggles. Yeah. Bra goggles. With, with whatever they've got. After nine days of hiking, having absolutely no idea where they're going, they hike down into a valley and they stumble upon a river and they see somebody on the other side of the <gasps> river. Uh. So they actually say that as they're getting down this valley, they start to see more signs of human life. So they see tracks or they see cows. They're actually starting to see something. Oh, cows. You'd be like, that looks delicious. Oh, mm, hamburgers. Mm, not human flesh, yeah. But they're basically... Because they hadn't seen anything. They're in snow and mountain. That's it. Mm-hmm. So they start to see vegetation. They start to see stuff. And they hit this river. I wonder if they wondered if they were hallucinating. Oh, I mean, they must have. You would just be so mentally exhausted by then. Destroyed. But they, they're in high spirits. So they get down to this river and they see somebody on the other side of the river. But the river's running so fast that they mm. can't talk across it. Mm. So they can't hear what's going on. So they're there and they basically they communicate to the person, like the person on the other side kind of realizes, I guess, that they're in distress, but they mm-hmm. don't know what's going on. They don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. And they communicate to this person tomorrow. So the person's like, okay. So I guess they camp there for the night and the next day the guy comes back. How do they communicate tomorrow? I don't know. I'm not sure. I thought you were going to say they communicate like plane crash, like they no, do a well, they, They're in the middle of nowhere still. Even though they, they've found someone, this person is probably a farmer in the middle of absolutely nowhere because they're on the mm. edge of the Andes still. So probably like an indigenous Andean Or, or something like that. Community. He's on a horse, I think. And he comes back and he has a rock and he, he basically straps a pencil and a piece of paper oh. to this rock and he throws it across the river. Smart. And they write on the note and say, we are the, we're from the plane crash. He writes a big note. You can actually read it. it was, I didn't want to quote all of it, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put a link to it. It's really interesting. He writes his whole thing. We are the Uruguayan crash. Mm-hmm. They're, they're still survivors. We need help. We're hungry. We're starving. Mm-hmm. You know, we're sick and things like that. He throws it back. And the guy who receives it, he's like, hmm, doesn't really know of it. But then they talk to someone else and they talk to someone else. And someone had remembered hearing about it. Because these guys are like far removed, you know. Right. So then it basically they're able to communicate everything. The news gets back to the police. It gets back to all the authority, and suddenly everyone knows that the plane people are still alive. Hallelujah. And that there's two of them down by the river and 14 still up at the plane. So the police, the army, and everyone just kicks into gear. The search and rescue teams are deployed by helicopter, and one of the guys accompanies the helicopter to help them find where the survivors are at. He'd used a map from the pilot to navigate over the mountains, so he kind of knew where he was going, but like not exactly. But he actually hadn't traveled that far. I think it was only about 35 kilometers maybe like 20 miles okay but it was very very hard conditions like up and down the mountains and yeah these guys are starving they've already been out there for two months right um so eventually the in the helicopter they find the wreckage and the the helicopter is only able to touch down with like a one touch 
it's called like a one skin landing. It's like a very hard landing to do. But they touch the helicopter down at the wreckage site and they're able to pick up, but they can't pick up everyone. They can only pick up half the survivors. Wow. So some of the people from the search and rescue team actually stay behind the night so they can get more of the survivors onto the plane. Ah. Oh. They pick up half the survivors and they take them back. And the next day the helicopter returns, picks up the remaining seven survivors, and everyone is taken to hospital to, to be treated for a number of issues. But in total, they had spent 72 days <gasps> out on the snow, had survived a plane crash, an avalanche, cannibalism, Crazy. malnutrition, broken bones, everything. That's bananas. And to this day, all of the 16 survivors that survived from that, pla- that crash in 1972, all of them are alive except for one uh, older guy who passed away a few years ago. So there's still 15 survivors wow. from that plane crash that are alive today. So none of them died like right afterwards in the hospital or no. anything? All Thank of them God. survived. Damn. That, that is insane. And there's been lots of books written about them. Um, there was made into a major motion picture called Alive in mm. 1993. Ethan Hawke, okay. uh, a couple of other people. Ethan Hawke, very famous Uruguayan actor. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but that is the story of Alive. Uh, there's that a lot of good crazy. documentaries. Uh, Alive, Surviving the Andes. There's some memoirs written by some of the guys, the key guys. Thank God they went on that adventure to go out and look for somebody. Yeah, so basically at day 60, they were like, well, you know, we've got to go or we're just going to die here anyway. So, right. Because eventually even the people who are dying, they're going to run out of that food source. Right. So nobody's obviously coming. So they think to themselves – I'm either going to die here by the plane and someone's going to eat me or I'm going to have to eat my best friend mm. or I'm going to die eventually even if, I'm, if, even if I'm the last one, yeah. I'm eventually going to die. Right. So they're like, fuck it. Let's I'm just go for it. I'm kind of surprised they didn't try that earlier. I am as well. I guess the conditions were just bad. Yeah. They had tried to do some kind of navigation, but right. they just it was just too difficult. Mm-hmm. But it's crazy to think that on day 61 – they finally thought we just got to go for it, right? And they still they hiked for nine days, Ugh. like nine days in the condition that they would have been in, and those terrible conditions, and finally made it. That's crazy. That's I mean, a they crazy could hiked, story. They could have just as easily hiked in the wrong direction, right? And never been seen again, right? For sure. But and, who? Yeah, what is the right direction? I mean, I guess they had somewhat of an idea. Mm-hmm. of which way they thought they had to go Yeah. in terms of, I guess it was west. So they were they were cutting back up north when they crashed a plane. So west was Chile. Mm-hmm. So I guess they kind of, I mean, I mean, there probably would have been a compass or something. Right. So that is the way that they realized they were supposed to be going. Thank God that guy was at the river with his horse. I mean, just insane story. That is an insane story. So that's the story of Alive, if you want to check out the movie. Okay. I've Alive. heard of the movie, but I didn't know that's what it was about. And there's so much more interesting stuff. Yeah. Like that's just, a, that's just a snippet of the story. Yeah. Uh, it gives you enough to just be amazed by it. But you can look into it. There's a good YouTube documentary I'll link to that has some of, some of the stories from the survivors. Some of the guys who wrote the memoirs have done interviews that talk about it. Uh, the guy who hit his head was in the coma for like two or three days and eventually mm-hmm. recovered. He survived. Wow. So he's in the interview and, and they talk to a neurosurgeon who basically says, like, at the time, we didn't realize it, but now we know that that's actually the best, like, that was Mother Nature's 
natural remedy for like what had to be done mm. to like save this guy. And wow. they said it's a weird paradox that the, the plane crash is actually what saved him because yeah. it was the tense cold that helped the swelling of his brain go down. Yeah, because if he had gotten t- taken to the hospital immediately, they wouldn't have done that. No, and he probably would have died. That's so crazy. So he came out of a coma basically two days later and was like started to see things and blurry and they're like, oh my God, like fucking hell, you're alive. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Good thing they didn't eat him. Yeah. He wakes up and someone's munching on his leg. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Oh, my God. That's a great story. Yeah. Insane. Insane. But, yeah, still, I mean, they all all survived. 16 people that got out of there of all alive up until, I think it was just four years ago, when one of the older guys died of cancer. But still 15 to this day are still alive. Because a lot of them were young at that time, 19, 18. They're all students in, I think, university. It's like a university rugby team. What a traumatic experience. Yes. After that, you're like, I can handle anything. Oh, yeah. They're pretty casual about it as well, the way they talk about it. Some of the, I'd be really interested in reading some of the memoirs mm-hmm. and hearing about that because that story of survival is just insane. Fascinating. Yeah. But it just is a testament to what the human body can do. Yeah, absolutely. It can eat human flesh. Yeah. And we Raw. complain about not eating like... I mean, we do intermittent fasting. We don't eat for 15 hours. And we're like, I need to eat. Seriously. So there you go, guys. If you are uh, just when, you, when you're really hungry and you think that you need to eat, think of these guys. Yeah, you might have to eat human flesh. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, that is definitely going to make have me thinking for a while, that one. That one? That's thinking a, about what? Thinking about that story. That's insane. Yeah, I really want to watch a movie now. Yeah, we should watch a movie. We should. Okay. Okay, we should go watch it now. Okay, let's go do okay. it. Okay. All right, guys. That's okay. it. Thanks episode for listening. 14. 14? 14. Last episode of 2019. Goodbye, 2019. Let's hear it for the roaring 20s. Woo! <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, wishing everybody a happy new year. Whatever yes. you're doing, wherever you are in the world, we want you to stay safe. Obviously, if you're not safe, tell us about it. Obviously. Obviously. That goes without saying. But do stay safe. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who has come along with us for this journey, for this voyage for 2019, 14 episodes in, excited to keep pumping them out in 2020. Yeah, we're not slowing down. We're not slowing down. Thank you to our voyages. Thank you to our first class voyagers yes. who sent in stories this year. You guys are the best. You know who you are. Keep sending in stories, peeps. We yep. want to hear them. Yep. You can find us on Instagram at Not So Bon Voyage. Follow us, message us, say good day. Tell us if you slide got, into the DMs. Uh, slide in, slip on in. Tell us if you've got any crazy travel stories or mishaps. We've been collating some awesome ones. We've got some great stuff planned for 2020. Some really great stories. So that's going to be cool. So that's why you should subscribe, subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. And that's about it. Yes, please. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Have a happy ass new year. 2019, you've been great. You've been beautiful. See you in 2020, bitches. Bye, bitches. Bye.